Well, welcome everybody. Can you hear me okay? Yep, okay, great. Um, my name is Nina Gold and I'm one of your board members here at SF Insight. Curious actually if there's anyone new here to our Sangha this evening. If so, you can raise your hand. Welcome, really happy to see you. Um, I'm delighted to introduce our teacher this evening. Um, Frank Ostaseski is um, a dear friend, longtime friend of San Francisco Insights. Um, he's the founder of the Zen Hospice Project and the Meta Institute. He told me not to go through his resume. I can't help myself, he's nodding, which I think means no, don't go through the resume. Um, he's, He's a pioneer in end-of-life care and working with death and dying and grief and loss. And I say this because um, just being in his presence has a profound impact on me. He's a wonderful teacher, writer, human, and I'm really uh, delighted to be here sitting with him and with all of you this evening. So Frank, um, passing it to you now. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Hello, everyone. Good to be with you again. Always does my heart good to be with the SFI Sangha. And so uh, I'm selfishly here because it does my heart so good, so much good. So, so I want to have us uh, sit for a little while first, and then we'll talk and have some exchange. But before we sit, uh, I wanted to... Uh, say a few words that might guide our meditation so I'm not talking through your meditation. Um, Ajahn Chah, you know, wonderful meditation master, Thai meditation master, he said to have taught, if you let go a little, you will have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. And if you let go completely, you'll be free. <laughs> anyway, uh, what I notice is that when we generally think of letting go, we think of it as setting something down or distancing ourselves from a particular object uh, of our meditation. Maybe it's our, a disturbing thought or a physical pain or strong emotion. But I don't know about all that. <laughs> I think all we can really do is become aware of the clinging or the aversion or the ignorance that's related to that object or experience. And perhaps wisely, see how it traps us. I think fundamentally, um, and this is important in our sitting practice tonight, we are transparent beings. Our awareness actually has the capacity to receive, you could say, and recognize everything that passes through it. A lot of times I think we think of ourselves as moving through life. Yeah. But um, in a direct experience, what we recognize is that actually life is moving through us. You all know, I'm sure, that in the Buddhist text, Buddha very kindly um, compiled, um, synthesized the thousands of ways we distract ourselves and harm ourselves. And he reduced them to a nice, neat list of three. You know how Buddhism has all those lists. 
you know, classically they're called greed, hatred, and delusion, which seem pretty heavy handed. Yeah. Until you experience them, then you realize, oh, that's actually how it is. They're, they're called poisons and they're called that for a reason. But my friend Martin Elwood, uh, who's taught at SFI over the years, I think occasionally, he reframed them in a way that I think is useful to us. And he reframes them as demand, defend, and distract. And uh, each of them have a kind of related, we could say, energetic pattern, you know, which we could describe as a pull, push, distract. I want to add that these poisons, so-called poisons, are doorways to our innate natural beauty. And uh, as these obscurations are, are seen through, uh, we open to the full radiance of our nature. So just a word on each of them, and then we'll sit. So traditionally, greed um, or we might say pull or demand. Uh, it's kind of this um, clinging that's often described as an unquenchable thirst. We want the objects of our life uh, or of our desire to provide us with some lasting satisfaction so that we feel fulfilled and whole and complete poison of this particular demand is that it creates a kind of inner hunger in us or that always has us striving for an unattainable goal and creates endless suffering for us. And if you pay attention to this energetic pull of clinging um, of this demand, what you see is that often there's this sense of deficiency, which is driving. And if we're present and aware to that feeling of deficiency, we can see how it takes shape in the body and the way it shapes our thoughts and generates certain emotional responses. So we can look for that today. And then aversion, the push, right? Aversion that shows up as anger and hostility and dislike and fear and ill will. And uh, it's the way we habitually resist and deny or unpleasant feelings or situations, right? Because we want to be comfortable all the time. And uh, what this does is trap us in this vicious cycle of conflict and making enemies everywhere. So we're endlessly involved with strategies of self-protection or revenge. And this happens even internally in relationship to ourselves. So aversion is the opposite of pull. It, it has this push to it. Um, and so we need to really see in the push what's unacceptable to us. And then the third, of course, as you well know, is delusion, um, which basically is the misperception of the world and how it works. You know, uh, simply said, you know, it's our inability to understand the nature of things, 
exactly as they are, free of distortion. And this poison, uh, well, it has us keep tripping and falling over ourselves. Energetically, it, it uh, doesn't have much push or pull to it, although it's reminiscent of those two. It more feels like we're spaced out, you know, like uh, we're dull or distracted. We're unable to see clearly. And so uh, it keeps us in this vicious cycle of unsatisfactoriness. So last thing I want to say before we sit is that none of this clinging, aversion, delusion, demand, defend, distract, however we name them, they are characteristics of the human condition. We didn't create them. <laughs> and so you don't have to feel guilty or wrong for having them. But what's useful, I think, is to let the love of truth guide us in our practice tonight in seeing them. Um, even if it's showing you something you don't like. Because um, that love of truth is really important as a motivation for our sitting tonight. Because, you know, some part of us knows internally, innately, that we're never going to be happy. No matter what our Jinta says, we'll never be happy until every part of us, every cell in our being is saturated with truth. So having said that, um, let's see if we can sit and notice the arising of one or more of these, you know, obscurations, hindrances, poisons, however we might name them. And uh, see if you have a favorite, you know, most of us have a mm, one that we're more inclined to. Yeah? So you can notice that. Uh, of course, all of us are subject to all three, but you might notice that there's one that's particularly popular in your, in your psyche. Okay, so I'll ring the bell three times and then we'll sit. And at the end, I'll ring it. Uh, three times to signal the end of our, our sitting practice. Okay, thank you for your practice. Really, thank you. Uh, I think our practice isn't just for our benefit. We're always sitting for and with all beings. And I think it, I don't know, I, I think it helps the world from spinning off its axis. So thank you for sitting. And, uh, and please just, just hold the intention to love the truth, okay? Everything else is extra.
So maybe you found your favorite demand, defend, or distract. I think Miru has a few announcements to make before we uh, lead into the talk. Yeah, sure. Hi, thank you, Frank, and hi, everyone. My name is Miru. I'm one of the board members of SFI. Um, um, I want to first of all welcome our new board member, Sarah Smith. Uh, for those of you who have seen the newsletter two weeks ago and this week, um, you probably noticed that Sarah used to also join us as a guest teacher, and then now she's officially part of the SFI board. So uh, if you see her next time, um, please welcome her as well. Um, one other announcement is about Donna. Um, Donna means generosity, as a lot of you know. Um, I want to quote one of my favorite teachers. Um, actually, I don't have favorite teachers. One of the teachers that I admire, um, Pema Children, she talks about Donna in the following way. The essence of generosity, Donna is letting go. Pain is always a sign that we are holding on to something, usually ourselves. When you feel unhappy, when you feel inadequate, we get stingy. We hold on tight. Generosity is an activity that loosens us up by offering whatever we can, a dollar, a flower, a word of, word of encouragement, we are training in letting go. So there are so many ways um, to practice generosity, this letting go. Um, I don't think the main point is the, what we give uh, about, but we unlock our habit of clinging. So it might be um, you're showing, um, if, you're, if you're clinging to money, maybe it's sharing the money with us too by donating to us. Or if maybe you are, if you're clean for the care from others, sharing the care um, to others might be the way to do. So in whatever form do you want to show the care for SFI, we welcome it. So we'll share the link for donation or volunteer acti activities. Or if you want to share with us other ideas, how you want to engage with us um, to grow this sangha, sangha, that'd be really great too. Thank you so much for your attention always. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, Miro. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in the in high and the high in the Himalayas, um, when they talk about dana or generosity, they talk about different ways to do it. One is to um, sweep the temple. And another is to, well, you see them putting little bits of gold dust on Buddha statues. And then, but the third, and they said, and sometimes said the highest form of dana is to, um, to appreciate your teacher by practicing sincerely with ardently. Yeah. All of those are ways to express our generosity, I think. So th this evening, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about um, letting go and surrender. Yeah. Um, but before we can even speak about that, we have to say a few words about seeking, seeking. I didn't sleep well last night. I woke about midnight and I couldn't get back to sleep all night. And so I haven't slept and I'm very tired. And last night when I couldn't sleep, I, I would find myself saying to myself, Frank, Frank, just try to rest, try to rest. You need to teach tomorrow, try to rest. But trying to rest is not resting. <laughs> it's just more trying. 
you know, more effort. More effort's needed, right? We need a certain amount of effort in our practice and in our lives. And, you know, you can't lift your bag into the trunk of your car if you don't extend some effort. But when we apply that same kind of effort to resting or to our own liberation, it kind of backfires on us. It doesn't work. I don't think we can find the deepest rest or true freedom through striving to change the way things are. We can only relax the activity that obstructs our, our contact with rest, our contact with freedom. I don't know about you, but when I look closely at my life, I see the desire is almost continuous. And it's not that it's inherently bad. It's just that sometimes mm, a relationship desire, we could say, is like a fire. <laughs> okay, that was exciting. Anyway, I was think I was saying that um, desire is like this fire that's burning uh, all the time. And it fuels the seeking that I'm talking about. And I think a lot of us, you know, particularly early on in our practice, we defined ourselves as seekers. We were very proud of being seekers. You know, it's an inevitable step on, on the spiritual path, right? but it can easily become a kind of hindrance. Now, energetically, seeking feels, to me anyway, agitated. It's restless. There's, it implies that somehow I'm deficient, that I'm not connected to something essential in my life. Something's missing. And this belief, this opinion about myself, it perpetuates a seeking. I don't think this agitated seeking will ever connect me with my Buddha nature. Nor will trying to get rid of my desires. <laughs> I mean, trying to stop all that seeking, that doesn't work either. It's just more seeking, more trying. This is the real paradox, right, of, of our spiritual life, if you will. Seeking has its place in the world. Probably it's what led us to sit on the cushion in the first place. But um, sometimes we get carried away by it. You know, we, in seeking a better life, you know, better connections, you know, we, we get lost in trying to find explanations for existential questions and relief from our pain and suffering. And we get entangled, gets entangled with this striving, I think. You know, we read books and seek out the best teachers, our favorite teachers, maybe. <laughs> and we go looking for our tribe, you know, and uh, there's this accumulation that happens that Weighs us down, I think. 
I think there is a form of seeking, which at least in my life, I found, I find useful. Sometimes it's called a wholesome desire, but it's basically the desire to be free, to, to know what's true, to be completely ourselves. And at least in my experience, uh, it doesn't feel agitated. It feels more like love, actually. You know, we love our basic nature. We, we love presence. We, we love the truth. And so we want to be close to it. We want to be intimate with it. It's kind of like a love affair with truth. So this seeking, I don't think it ends by finding. I think seeking just ends. And this maybe guides us into the territory of letting go and surrender a little bit. Nina mentioned that I worked for a long time helping to guide the Zen Hospice Project. And some of you I know have been volunteers there. Eugene was a volunteer there. And I saw Jerome Friedman earlier and when I was scanning the galleries and Jerome was around in the beginning. I remember there was a, a guy at the hospice. He was a hospice patient and he was a pretty well-known rock and roll musician. <laughs> and he taught me a lot about letting go. He, he, one day he was weeping, actually crying. And, and then very gracefully, he gave up his favorite Gibson guitar to a friend. And he said uh, something like, you know, I don't remember exactly, but he said something like, we're not what we have. And he said, anyway, there's no storage units in heaven. <laughs> so uh, my reference point is often being with people who are dying because it teaches me so much. And, you know, when we're dying, there's a, we lose this ability to engage in our favorite activities. You know, we need to let go of traveling or cooking or, or sometimes making love or or even simpler pleasures like, I don't know, learning to swallow without difficulty. <laughs> or the roles we played in our families or communities or, I don't know, the, the dreams we had that never got manifested, you know, were never achieved. And in our dying, we let go of the future and, and everything and everyone we loved. But still, this, this term letting go is troublesome to me. <laughs> Suzuki Roshi, uh, he used to say that renunciation is not giving up the things of the world, it's accepting that they go away. So, in my experience, uh, acceptance of impermanence is, it reveals the flip side of loss, actually. You know, it, it, it shows us about generosity. That's what Miru was talking about, really, when she was reading Pema. You know, we, we, we let go of old grudges and we, and we give ourselves to peace. We, 
we let go of fixed views about ourselves and others and and we give ourselves to not knowing. We let go of our fierce self-sufficiency and, and we give ourselves into the care of others. We let go of clinging and we give ourselves to generosity, gratitude. We let go of control and we give ourselves to surrender. Letting go and, and surrender, they're often conflated. And I think it's really important that we discern the difference between the two. I don't think surrender is the same as letting go. You know, normally we, we think of letting go as a kind of release, right, from some previous restraint. And there's a feeling of uh, freedom freedom from that restraint. But it's not really about setting anything down or distancing ourselves from an object or a person or an experience. That's not what surrender is about. Surrender is not a strategy. Letting go is still a strategy. You know? Some, I've seen it a lot around when people are dying, some separate sense of self has the idea that if we let go, we'll somehow be safe. Well, maybe we'll be saved somehow. Yeah. It's a strategy of the sense of separate self. It's it's still me doing something. Surrendering feels different to me. It isn't just about distancing myself from something. It feels more like I'm coming close to something, something I innately know in a way, and it's familiar to me, you know, that I've had a sense of. I may not conceptually even understand it, but I, it's familiar. And so it has this feeling of, at least in my case, um, a feeling of expansion. Yeah. You know, you, you've probably experienced it in meditation sometimes, you know, when we notice that this instinctual drive to control, to, to have the world be exactly as we want it, you know, or trying to avoid what we dislike, you know, starts to soften. Maybe we find ourselves relaxing a little bit into the uncertainty and the fluidity of the world. Maybe there's uh, more spaciousness of mind, maybe infused with a certain curiosity that has us not knowing rather than being fixed on our opinions. When I'm sitting, I, I feel like I fall in love with that moment. Not in a grasping, gotta have it way, but being fully present to what's happening. And, and 
with a sense of curiosity or appreciation, you know, and all that just seems to require much less, much less energy, much less energy than control for sure. Surrendering just means that things are allowed to be as they are. In surrender, it's like we're reconstituted. We're no longer enslaved to our past or to our opinions, no longer imprisoned by our former identities. So we become more intimate with a kind of inner truth of our most essential nature, our Buddha nature, we could say. And surrendering, we're not really distancing ourselves. Again, we're coming closer. Surrender happens when we stop fighting. We stop fighting against ourselves or stop fighting with life or with death in some cases. Surrender is a kind of state in which any resistance, any kind of resistance ceases. We no longer put up any defenses. Personally, I'm not so sure, I'm not convinced anyway, that surrender is a choice. I know we talk about it, you know, we say to people, just surrender. But to me, it seems almost involuntary. You know, it's, sometimes it feels like an undertow in the ocean to me, or some karmic thread drawing me closer to what I most love. And I think there's a lot of things that may engender surrender, may support it. You know, sometimes it's people's religious beliefs or confidence in their acquired wisdom or faith. But I think, at least in my case, and there's another thing which is really commonly gives rise to surrender and it's exhaustion. Exhaustion, I just can't keep up the fight. I can't keep up the resistance. I'm tired. It happens in meditation all the time, but it happened once when I was rafting down the Grand Canyon, you know, on the Colorado River. I got tossed out of my raft into a giant whirlpool, just swirling around this big whirlpool. And, uh, you know, they're, they're big and powerful and they can take you down. And, and I, you know, there's things you're supposed to do if it happens. And I did all the wrong things. You know, I, I started swimming like to the edge of the world was if I could get to the end of it and lift myself out, you know, but of course I couldn't. And, and people threw me ropes and I kept going down and coming up and trying to grab the ropes. And, and finally I got exhausted and, and it took me down and I kept fighting and it wasn't a gentle letting go at all. You know, I was fighting, you know, in this turmoil of currents and, muddy water pool. And finally, I just couldn't fight anymore. And I let go. Well, I didn't let go. I, I surrendered. It's, surrendering happened. That's a better way to say it. And it stuck me down, right down to the bottom of the river. And it dragged me along the bottom of the river. And I thought, hmm, 
maybe this is it. It was awareness, but not much control. And then it spit me out in an eddy at the, you know, calm place further down the river. And, and when I emerged, I felt like I emerged with fresh eyes. I was defeated and then I surrendered. Took defeat. I remember while it was happening, I had this experience that was a bit like people describe when they're in a car accident sometimes, you know, time stands still and you can see clearly all the details of your surroundings. It reminded me also of what people have often described to me about their dying process. I, I understood what Barbara meant when she said to me, you know, I, I'm no longer in charge. And I can relate more easily to, uh, to Ruth's voice. I remember Ruth who said you know, to me, I just fall back into the breath and it catches me. I remember looking into Joshua's eyes and he would sing to me, actually. He would sing to me in this old gospel song. Got no more troubles. I'm resting my head in the lap of Jesus, he would say. I think surrender is infinitely deeper than letting go, more than acceptance even. Ego can't surrender. Surrender is effortless. It, it, it occurs to me that it's kind of like an initiation surrender. Yeah, it's like um, you've been through some kinds of initiations, all of you. It's when the What's dispensable is sacrificed to what's essential. And while we, we might try to resist, ultimately it proves ineffective. And it's not always easy because this kind of disillusion which is happening. I mean, that's what precedes certain that we could say is a kind of chaos and disillusion. And often there's a kind of sense of fear. And, uh, and the voices in our head say, pull back, get back, go back, you know? But also something else is there. And I just refer to it as our Buddha nature. You know, it's, it's so compelling, it's so, so much love for it that the fear doesn't stop us. And the struggle ceases. And our consciousness recognizes that that power that we were, if we felt would engulf us, that would overwhelm us, that we were pulling back from. Well, 
That's our own deep being. And we surrender not to, to that, to the reality of non-separation. I say sometimes that surrender is the end of two and the opening to one. But that's a bad Buddhist, you know, because Buddhists, we would say, not one, not two. Yeah, that's really what we're surrendering to, not one, not two. But it feels like one, like we're one body, you know, one body, and we're, we recognize that, we, we release. We don't, it's not even we do it, you know, it's just, it happens. So we surrender to not one, not two. We've all had some experience of this, all of us. So in your practice, in your meditation practice, it doesn't have to be something dramatic. It doesn't have to be drowning in the river, you know, in the Colorado River or something like that. It, it can be very simple, but it's useful to distinguish in the meditation practice the distinction between letting go and surrender. To really sense into it, to, to feel it, you know, to observe what happens in the body, heart, and mind when surrendering is occurring. And again, I think there are things that engender it, you know, our practice, our training, our, our faith can engender it. But I've seen it happen for really ordinary people who have no practice and no training, no so-called inner life, you know, but they get exhausted and it happens. Yeah. So, So that's enough words. Really what I'd like to do is kind of have an exchange with you, you know, just see what's, how this touches you. Where does this land, you know, in your body, heart, or mind? And, and uh, maybe you have something you want to share about it or you have a question or something like that. I don't know. And you know how to do this. You know how to raise your digital hand, you know. You know, probably if you have the most recent version of Zoom, under the more button, there's a reactions button. There's a icon where you can raise your hand. And if you do that, uh, Nina will call on you and, and we'll get a chance to speak. And, and I just want to say something to the in, in, introverts and the extroverts also, that um, we're not necessarily going to take everybody in order. <laughs> so... Um, even if you put your hand up first or second or third, you know, we might you know, go around, jump around and see if we can get a diversity of uh, people and ideas and see what we can learn, okay, together. So what's on your hearts and minds? Maybe you want to say something about the meditation, you know, mention something about your favorite uh, poison or, uh, or maybe there's something about what I just said in the talk. So Nina, I'll, I'll leave it to you to, um, select somebody and I'll just try my best to yeah. Ooh. I'll give you a second to handle Sorry. the phone hold on yeah take your time um, 
Sorry. No worries. I thought Life. I had all that turned off, but apparently I didn't. <laughs> Life happens. Yeah. Okay. So who's got their hand up, Nina? Let's um let's start with Phil. Phil, okay. Hi, Phil. Phil. Yeah. Hi. Frank, first of all, I always love your teachings. And uh, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity of having your teaching tonight. So uh, the question I ask is, when we think about let go, often there's this sense of, I need to let go of the greed, the hatred, the indifference. I need to let go of the desire for the object of the car or the money or the status. But in reality, is not the essence of letting go our identification with our sense of self. And I think you alluded to that in your talk, that, that, that the real freedom is not letting go of that it is the clinging or the object, but it, it is our identification with self. And, and then the second part is, well, they say, my thoughts are like clouds, just let them go. And I don't know about you, but I have tsunamis and thunderstorms in my mind. And to simply say, let them go, offers me no effective strategy in order to let go of my clinging. And so I wish you could address that. Thank you. Well, thanks, Phil. And, um, so for the first part of your question, um, um, To be honest, Phil, I'm a little suspicious of the whole idea of letting go. I'm not sure that um, it's not just another activity of the sense of separate self. So when you say, yes, it's built on the identification with the self, yeah, yeah. But, you know, that's a pretty big thing to let go of. <laughs> uh, I think actually... We spend too much time trying to do that. I think we just, for me anyway, I've just come to see that who I am actually isn't trying to get rid of anything, Phil. It's just not. It's like it's big enough to include my sense of identity and my opinions and my strong sense of self. And, and it has no need to get rid of anything. So that's the first, my first take on your first part of your question. Yeah. Like, who, who's this one that thinks it should let go of all this? You think it's awareness? Ah. So I, I, don't, uh, I don't see it that way. I think we, we uh, it's an egoic idea of what, it's a way we appropriate our deep nature by seeing it only through the lens of our separate self. So that's the first thing. The second is, you know, about the clouds and flipping and buying. Yeah, I think we get to be a little too, maybe, I don't know, poetic. <laughs> uh, because as you suggest that, you know, sometimes it feels like there's a volcano inside or there's tsunamis, et cetera. And, uh, and that instruction is often given to have us be a little less effortful, perhaps. But uh, um, to me, it doesn't have so much to do with whatever the content is. 
But it doesn't matter so much what the content is. It's this, it's that, it's my grief, it's my anger, it's whatever it is. You know, just see what the effect of it is. You know, see how it's, how it's taking shape in your body, heart, and mind. And know it. Know it really well, intimately. And when you know it and you, you see it clearly, you see right through it. And then the natural radiance and beauty of who you are is just waiting to be known, not obscured anymore. And so rather than trying to release and get rid of and all that stuff, just know it intimately. You know, like, remember when you first fell in love? Huh? You don't remember? You remember when you first fell in love, Phil? Yeah, okay. And how you wanted to know everything about this person you fell in love with? You wanted to see them with as few clothes on as possible, right? Know them intimately. That's how it is with the truth. You want to know it intimately, as few obscurations as possible. And that's a way to practice, I think. Well, it's not so much sorting and, sh- and, and sifting as much as it is coming to know intimately in a loving way because we're curious because we want to know we love to know not just conceptually but in our heart of hearts okay enough for now Okay, Nina, I don't know who else you have. Let's uh, go to Happy now. I love going to Happy. <laughs> Hi, Frank. Oh, Happy. Uh, Hi. Yes. Hi. <laughs> oh, I thought, it was an inst- I thought it was an instruction from Nina. Oh. <laughs> Let's go to Happy. Now I see who it is. Okay, Happy, what can I, how can I, what would you like to say? Yeah, I think um, I want to share about the, the clinging that you talked about at the beginning mm-hmm. of meditation. Yeah. Um, I mean, a little bit context there is that I, I had COVID, so I've been quarantining. So <laughs> with so much more downtime, mm. so much emotion just came up for me. And I think a big one that struck me was I have been really feeling a lot of like the sadness from a relationship that ended like literally like eight months ago. Mm. And I think because of, I think probably with the downtime, like those emotions are like coming through. And then I noticed when the meditation started, I was like, oh, a big part of my difficulty was I was holding on. I was clinging to the happiness in the relationship. Mm. So I have a lot of like self-judgment about, oh, I should have done better or like I could have. I don't know. I just feel like, oh my God, so much of my suffering mm. was because I am clinging to the joy yeah. and I want to keep it. And I wish I'd done something different that a relationship is still here. But then like, I'm just, and, but then I guess like, then I was like, oh, I need to let go. But then, like you said, it's just so hard. I just feel like, I don't know what let go means because like this thing just keep coming back up. This, this emotion and this relationship. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm curious about like, what is a skillful way to deal with this? Is it like, I, sh- I guess I'm trying to see, oh, does that mean I want to practice surrendering to whatever comes? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess I'm just like, 
uh, yeah. trying to get some skillful suggestion on a practical level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, first of all, it's a really good insight that you're having, and I want to acknowledge that you're having a, you know, a, a bright insight that your practice is mm, having fruit, bearing fruit. Okay. So uh, let's first acknowledge that, right? And then also, um, Abby, suppose, I'm gonna ask you a hard question, okay? Suppose the grief never went away, that it would be here endlessly in your life, not necessarily the only thing in your life, but that it would always be here. Not necessarily even the grief of this particular relationship, but the grief would be here endlessly in your life. When I say you and say that, what happens for you? Unmute yourself. Oh, I guess I just started crying when you said that. Yeah. Um, I guess I just, I guess I kind of was like. So, so wait now, stay right there for oh, a second. Okay. So when okay. you started to cry, what was it like? What did you feel for yourself? I guess I, I, I feel the grief. Yeah. But there's, like, something, there's something in relationship to you. There's the grief of the loss of the relationship. But I had the sense that when you thought of yourself as someone who was grieving this loss, that this grief of this loss would never go away. You had a relationship with yourself. What was it? What happened? I guess, I guess maybe there's an underlying thought that like, <clears throat> like I want to be like upbeat and happy and not oh. be in such a damn grieving kind of state. Uh -huh. I want yeah. something else. I want something else. I want to be like, I want to grieve to be over. Yeah. Right. So suppose it doesn't go away. Then what? You know, um, it's part of the human condition, happy. And it's kind of an underground stream running through all our lives. So, Suppose there was endless grief and there was endless compassion or kindness. So we could say tenderness to be with that. That's what I saw happening to you when you started to cry happy. Oh. Not just the grief of the lost relationship, but tenderness with yourself. That you have that grief. And that's, a, that's an expression, that's a facet, we could say, of compassion of your innate compassion, that when you're hurting, your good, wise heart reaches out in kindness to you to say, oh, okay, I can be tender with you. I can mm -hmm. be tender with you. And that's, that's important to pay attention to, not just the grief of the loss, not what you lost in this relationship, but your relationship to you when this comes up, is one of kindness and tenderness. And that those are, those are capacities that are innate to you that will enable you, even if grief goes forever, will enable you to be with it. And not be swept away and not be lost by it. Oh, I see. So it's kind of like the, <laughs> the tenderness allow me to 
view the grief. Yeah, not, not, not to get over it, not as a strategy. You allow the grief till you see what else comes up in relationship to it. And what else comes up in your case immediately was tenderness. The very quality you need to be with. You know, there's endless suffering in this world, Abby, and there's endless compassion to meet it. But when we're only leaning into the suffering side, we forget what we have as a resource to meet it. And it's not just, oh, I get, I get the opposite. I get joy. That's, that's good. That balances out the, the tallies, the, the, the sheets, you know, tallies the numbers. It's that you have something innate to you that can be with what's difficult. Oh, I see. So like the tenderness yeah. allows me to almost like feel the grief yeah. and like be with it. Yeah, and, and, not, and not have to get rid of it. And it, does, it doesn't mean it'll, you'll just walk around in grief all the time. It means that you'll have a resource that will enable you to have grief without getting rid of it and to learn from grief without having to banish it and to connect with other people in their grief because you now have something that can build an empathetic bridge to them. And that you, that arose so naturally for you, Happy. I could see it in your face. And it, you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to be someone special, some great Buddhist meditator. It just was the most natural thing. Oh, I'm grieving. Oh, oh. And there was tenderness immediately as your tears came. So staying with an experience, not to get rid of it, but to learn about it and to see what else it, it, it uh, calls forth in us is important. Okay. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. It was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Ah. Okay for now. Nina. Okay. Thank you. Let's go with Madison, who I saw in person just a few hours ago. Madison, okay. Hi, Frank. I love the rainbow behind you, or whatever it is, that, that background. It looks it's called, like an, you, it's, called an, it's called an Enzo. Yeah. It's a, a continuous circle. Yeah. I see it. I really can see it. Um, this might be very superficial. It's 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 really strange. I um I was swimming today when I saw our wonderful moderator, and I I was definitely in a state of struggle with um the other the other swimmers and wanting and not receiving and all of this stuff. Then at one point I started to get this headache. And I just went into this deep fear of now I got COVID. I can't have COVID. I have these gigs scheduled for work this week. I can't have COVID. And um, I'm, I'm among the few people who maybe hasn't had it yet or had a mild case of it or whatever. Mm. And um, it was a really horrible feeling. Yeah. And I went down very dark road. I'm a single woman. I can't be doing COVID. I, yeah. I get sick. Nobody's going to be bringing me food. And Okay. Got it. Got yeah, it. And the, and the mind spins out. 
Yeah. Okay. So can I ask you a question, Madison? Sure. What happened to the water? The water I was swimming in? Yeah. I, I, I got out of it at some point. I felt the headache either before I got out or when I got out. So, so when, all the, when this started to spin out, when the thought came in and then the, you know, the narratives began to spin, did you, could you still feel the water? Or did, no. was it just, no, right. Right. Okay. But I think I noticed as I've been noticing for quite some time that all of this stuff washes through me. The yeah. headache doesn't last indefinitely. It just lasts long enough for me to go down the edge of the pier, yeah. And jump in. Yeah. So I, I said this in the meditation that sometimes we think of us moving through life, but actually all of life is moving through us. That's actually what's happening, you know? And, uh, and so that's why embodied practice is so important. That's why I was asking about the water, because you can see what happens when the, the, it'll come up, right? And the mind starts to spin and all the narratives come. And, you know, it's not that they're untruthful narratives um, and not reasonable fears. But the thing is, we've got nothing to deal. We've got no place for it if we're not embodied. It just spins and it, and it swirls out of control like that whirlpool I was in, you know? And so we need some embodiment, if you will. We have to sense the body so that there's some container, if you will, for uh, the emotional states and the mental states that, that occur. Without that, we're, we're, we're likely to just spin out of control. Yeah? So our body, we often think of our body as something, and, and many religions and many psychological practices and others have taught us that even Buddhism teaches us sometimes to let go of the body. You know, I don't think so. I think the body is part of the sacredness of life. And it's how true nature manifests in the world. No bodies, no trees, not much manifestation for true nature. So, I'm encouraging you, I'm saying this to encourage you to remember what you already know, okay? That, you know, when you, when you're, when you're, it's not a mistake that you have a body and your headache was giving you some reminder of that. But it was, you know, I get the sense that there was a lot of building up that added to the sense of tension that gave rise to your headache, you know? But the headache was a kind of alarm clock, you know, going off a, a mindfulness bell, we say going off, right? To remind you, body, 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 body. Yeah. So just, it's just a reminder of what you know, Madison. Just keep, use, keep trusting the sensing of your body. It, you know, it's a useful practice. It, otherwise, anyway. Otherwise, it's too easy to spin out. So what you're saying then is to listen to it and feel it, but not necessarily to jump onto the train of thoughts about it. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, train of thoughts are just that. They're train of thoughts. Some of them take us to Paris and some of us take them to, you know, some hell realm, right? So, so feel, you know, know the body, sense it, literally sense it, you know. Before every thought, before every emotion, there is an experience of body. Mm. You, know, you know, our emotions is the primary emotion, we could call it, right? That's the, I like it, don't like it, neutral, right? 
And then there's a secondary emotion. Oh, I don't like it. I want to get rid of it. Oh, I don't. That's the second. That's a thought. Or a secondary emotion is, yeah, I had horrible, 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 right? So, the, but what comes before both of those is contact, physical sensation, something coming in through one of the sense doors eyes, ears, mouth, tongue, nose. Yeah. So use those doors of perception as a way not just to perceive the world, but to also ground yourself. Yeah, even in water. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Huh. I, uh, Nina? Yes. I, I don't see well, but I see Jerome Friedman's hand up, and I'd love to talk with him. If, I was, uh, I was going to call on him next. Perfect. Oh, see, we're in sync. <laughs> Thank you for reading my mind. My pleasure, Jerome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to see you again, Frank. Uh, I just enjoy your teaching so well with Roshi Joan and, and with the Year to Live and mm -hmm. wherever you are. You know, just wonderful teachings. And I have a question about surrender. Um, 70 years ago, when I was a, a young boy, mm. I um, used to play chess. And I'd go over to my cousin's house, who was like 40. And most of the time, I'd beat him. But some of the time, I had to surrender because my position was hopeless. So how is that sense of surrender different from the sense of you being swirled up by the whirlpool? Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's important because it's such a loaded word, surrender. You know, like, you know, we watched all those movies when we were kids about people surrendering, you know, and it was always that they lost. <laughs> it was always that they lost. And... Um, uh, that they gave up, you know, they were weak. That's, that's, those are all the associations we have with that word, you know, from our conventional world, our conditioned world. And, and actually, I actually think it's, John Wellwood and I once had this conversation about this, and we both agree that there is defeat and um, that it's an important aspect of surrender, defeat. And it's not like <clears throat> you've lost the war and you can't, you know, you're, you're, you're gone. It's that in a way, our resistance is defeated. Our thinking we're in control is defeated. Mm -hmm. That's actually what's defeated. And then now what else comes? It's like what I was saying earlier to Happy. What else comes if we let that defeat show itself? Yeah. What might emerge? So I think um, it has a lot to do with our relationship of mind to what's occurring, Jerome. You know, um, we're, we get really good in Vipassana practice at naming various experiences. But right. what we fail to do sometimes, is that, that's, that's the easy part. What we fail to do sometimes is re recognize our relationship or our attitude of mind to what's occurring. You know, the clinging, the, the demand, defend, distract, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so I think we're going to get defeated all the time. And I welcome it. <laughs> I mean, little old me is going to get defeated, you know. And 
And I don't, I no longer feel like I've lost or I'm weak when that happens. I feel like, oh, oh, something's emerging. There's a new opportunity that's here that I couldn't see before because I was so blinded by my need to control or to win or to be strong or whatever, whatever other opinion we have of ourselves. Yeah, yeah I, I understand that because when you're playing, when I was playing chess mm-hmm. in a tournament, for example, mm-hmm. my heart would just be racing through the whole thing because I, I wanted so badly to win. Yeah. 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 Did you ever have the, the experience of feeling like you're about to get defeated and then and go, oh, shit, oh, man, I'm going to be defeated. And then suddenly you see an opportunity you didn't notice before? Yes, I've seen that happen. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I've had that happen in, in my life, too. It's like sure. uh, I had a cancer in uh, 1997, bladder cancer, uh-huh. spread to my uh, muscles in, mm-hmm. in the bladder. And... Uh, I thought I was a goner and I was kind of surrendered to the whole process of healing. And I took on a non-traditional way of managing the cancer. Mm-hmm. The traditional way is to remove the bladder. Right. And I chose to spare the bladder. And then, you know, in context with the Zen Hospice Project, I would be a counselor to other people with bladder cancer. And I would recommend they try sparing the bladder because they could always take it out later. Hmm. But most of the people that I counseled passed away because they, they, they gave up. And and I think giving up is a little different from surrender because if you surrender to the experience and be present for what's going on with the healing process, you can survive. You know, so it's over 25 years now. Uh-huh. It's kind of an oddball situation because yeah. they never expected me to get past year five. Yeah, wonderful. Great, great illustration. I mean, the only thing I would um, point to in, in what you just shared is that I don't want surrender to become our next strategy. I get that too. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, if I surrender, oh, and then I'm going to make it through. I mean, you've seen it, Jerome. You and I have seen it a lot when people are dying. This idea that if I accept, somehow it won't happen. Or if I let go, I'll have a good place in heaven, you know? And it's strategies. It's strategies of the sense of self. Yeah. I get it. Thank you. Surrender, Thank you. surrender just happens. I don't mean that it's random. I mean that it's the, it's the natural response of uh, our nature um, to what is beyond our control. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. See you soon. Okay. Bye. Oh, Nina, I think our time is up if I'm, if I'm accurate, I don't know. I don't do well with time these days. You are accurate. Okay. Then, uh, then I apologize to the other people who have their hands raised and or I think have their hands raised and I 
might not have gotten to, but next time maybe, yeah. But uh, please, in your practice, um, in the meditation practice, learn to distinguish, to discern the difference between letting go and, and surrender. That's not to make one better than the other. I just notice the, notice how it, you experience it in the body, heart, and mind. Yeah, and once and so letting go is useful, very useful, skillful. Um, but also see what surrender's like. See what letting go feels like. What's the, what's the affect of letting go, and what's the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, the outcome of letting go, and. Feel the affect of surrender and what the outcome of that is. Okay. All right. Let's see. Oh, somebody has their microphone unmuted, I guess. I was hearing some other sounds. Anyhow, Isabel. Okay. So, um, okay. Thank you very much for practicing together tonight. I really like practicing with you. I, I, I feel such fondness for the sangha, I feel like it's a home for me and I'm, I'm very grateful to be home tonight. So thank you for inviting me and for your trust and your willingness to kindly listen and, uh, and explore together. I'm very grateful. Okay. Oh, if there has been any benefit from our time together, any merit that has emerged from our exploration and our insight and our willingness to not know. May that benefit go out and over the world in each of the 10 directions and be of benefit to those who most need it. And I hope that that will include us as well. So thank you very much for practicing together. We don't practice just for ourselves, never. Always practicing with and for all beings. So may all beings feel the benefit of our loving awareness and our love of truth and our willingness or steadfastness to stay with what we want to turn away from. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.